Good morning, church. Good to see you in person today. Great to have our live streamers with us as well. Click the like and click the share, if you would, please, and then we'll be best friends. All right, I want to invest the service today with a little bit of culture. So, we're going to start off with poetry. Now, this poem right here may be the most famous poem in America, if not the world, by virtue of at least the number of citations that it receives. It's in greeting cards, it's in works of literature, it's quoted in movies. So it's a very well-known poem. Some of you would probably know what it is. The title is The Road Not Taken. It's by Robert Frost. There's four paragraphs here, and let me read them for you. I know it's poetry, but just kind of hang with me. It has to do with what we're talking about today. There's a bit of a kicker at the end. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And being one traveler long, I stood, and I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. And the final paragraph. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. The road less traveled. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount toward the end speaks of a road less traveled. In fact, it's one of his commands. And we're in the sermon series, Obey Everything, looking at the commands of Jesus. So that's the command we're going to be talking about today. The command to take the gate and the road less traveled. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now, today I'm going to talk, I'm going to zero in on the gate, the narrow gate, and then next week we'll talk about the difficult road. The road is difficult, but it's a sermon unto itself. But the gate to life is a narrow gate. So the question is, in what sense is it narrow? How is that gate a narrow gate? I mean, is it that God, while on the one hand, yes, He's given us a gate by which we could get off the highway to hell and on the road to life, but He's made that gate so narrow and so small and so difficult that only the best people, the really good people, the righteous people, those with the most self-discipline are ever going to be able to force themselves through that gate and squeeze through that gate and get in there. Is that just like God? Well, some people might think so. In Thomas Costain's work, The Three Edwards, he talks about a man named Reynold III, a 14th century duke of what is now Belgium. Reynold was extremely overweight. He was known by his nickname Crassus, which is Latin for fat. Reynold had a, a younger brother, Edward. They quarreled. Quarrel was so severe that Edward led a revolt against his brother and prevailed. But instead of killing Reynold, he built a room around him in the uh, tower of Newkirk and imprisoned him there for all effects. Now, 
for most of us, we would have been able to leave that room anytime we wanted to because it had several windows and an almost normal-sized door. But uh, Ronald could not, Reynold rather, could not fit through the door because of his size. And Edward said to him, he said, you can leave this room anytime you want to, and when you do, you can have your title back, your wealth, and all your power. But he couldn't fit. Edward knew his brother well, and every day he sent him sumptuous and gourmet meals. So instead of dieting his way out of that prison, Reynold, he just got bigger and bigger and bigger. When Edward was accused of cruelty, he responded, I'm not being cruel. My brother can leave the room anytime he wants to. But he stayed in prison there for 10 years until Edward finally died in battle. And then he was released. Reynold was released, but his health had deteriorated at that point to when he died within a year of his release. He was imprisoned by his own appetites. Now, is this what God did? He, yes, he constructed a gate, you know, but he knew we were imprisoned by our own appetite. So while theoretically it's possible to get onto the gate to life, God knows that we are subject to temptation and sin and our appetites and just the very best and saintly people are ever going to fit through that gate. Is that what God has done? Well, it's been said that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. I don't know if that's the most important thing about you, but it is certainly an important thing about us is what we think about God. For instance, Jesus told the parable of three servants, and they had a master, and the master entrusted each one of them with a bag or bags of silver. You remember this parable. And he went off on a trip, and he said, I want you to invest this silver, and when I return, I'd like you to give me the money and the profits. Give me the principal back and the profits. So he went away, and he came back, and two of those three servants, they did just that. They'd invested the silver, they returned to him the principal and the profits. But the third servant had a different reaction. Matthew 25, 24. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came, and he said, now remember, this is in the context of what we think about God is the most important thing about us. He said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate, and I was afraid to lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Here's your money back. Now, notice this servant's, what he thought about his master. His concept of his master was a very harsh and unjust man. As a result, his concept led him to take actions to do things which were, according to the Bible, were foolish and wicked. Now, of course, you understand that the master in the parable represents God and the servants represent us. And the idea is something like this. If my concept of God is that he's harsh and unjust and unfair, you know, and the suffering that I have in my life, is, it's all because of God and it's his fault and he's out to get me. If that's my concept of God, then it may very likely lead me to live a life and take actions that are foolish and wicked. If, on the other hand, my concept of God is more that he is loving and he is fair and he is good and he is generous and he is patient and he's merciful and when I need him not to be just, he'll be gracious with me. Now, if that's my concept of God, that's far more likely to lead me to a life 
and take actions that are wise and righteous. And this is what Tozier is getting at when he says, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now hold that thought in your head and let's, again, think about this gate, this narrow gate that leads to life. Why is it narrow? In what sense is that gate narrow? Let's go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, when God created the world and He created the Garden of Eden. And all the people that God had created at that point were in the garden and they were by default on the road to life. Now, today the default is more on the road to death, the highway to hell, but the default then was on the road to life. And the gate to life was huge. It was ginormous. Whereas the gate to death was very small and narrow. If you think about it. Now think about how many commandments we have to obey now. We, we who are Christians. Look how thick the Bible is here. And it's full of commandments. You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got commandments in the Old Testament. You have commandments in the New Testament. You've got the Sermon on the Mount. We've been camped out in this sermon series the Sermon on the Mount, looking at the commandments of Jesus, things to do and not to do, for months. We can't hardly get out because there's so many commandments. Not so in the beginning. The people that God created there in the beginning, they basically had two commandments, one positive, one negative. God said, first of all, be fruitful and multiply. All right, that's the positive one. Basically, you're surrounded here by this garden, this orchard, these fruit-bearing trees, all of these plants. Anything you see, eat it. If it looks good to you, eat it. Because it's not only going to taste good, it's going to be good for you. It's all organic. <laughs> There's no pesticides. You don't have to worry about trans fats or cholesterol or too much sugar. It's all not only good, it's good for you. And if you want to do something, do it. If it feels good, do it. You can do it and it's good for you. Everything you want to do is good. Do it. So that's all the positive. You know, the, the road to life and the gate to life is huge. That was the one commandment. The other of the two commandments, I mean, their Bible would have been one page with two sentences. And the, the negative commandment had to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, all right, you've got all these trees. You can eat the whole orchard and the whole garden. There's one skinny little tree over here, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that fruit, then you will die. That was the gate to death. And it was so teeny tiny and narrow. Everything else is permissible. That's the one thing you can't do. See how skinny the gate to death was? I mean, if you were going to get on the road to death, you're going to have to really work at it. So I picture a big pie, like a big circle pie. It's got one little sliver cut out of the pie. Well, most of that pie is the gate to life, and the tiny little sliver is this gate to death. But we know the story. We know Adam and Eve, they saw the gate to death, they decided to squeeze and push, and they forced them through that skinny little gate. They ate the forbidden fruit, and then everything inverted. The gate to death blew open, and the gate to life slammed shut. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and He placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of what? Life. The way to life was now closed. You cannot enter. However, 
Back to what do you think about God and the nature of our God? Now, God could have left everybody from that point on on the highway to hell. He still would have been just. But that was not and is not God's nature. His original intent was to create children in His image with whom He could fellowship and live, live eternally together in paradise. That was God's intent. And what God wants, God gets. And He was not allow, about to allow that serpent to steal that from him. And so he devised a plan and began to construct a gate, another way to life. The whole history of redemption is about getting us back on the road to life and back into paradise as God originally intended it. So I want us to kind of picture God constructing a gate here. He's going to build this, this gate. It's a gate to life. And he starts out with the gate being big enough for one man, Noah. So Noah builds an ark and he saves all of mankind. He preserves all of mankind out of the first worldwide judgment, the flood. And God made his covenant with Noah, the man. That's gate number one, one man. Now, we travel along the path of redemptive history and we come to the first enlargement of this gate, God enlarges it big enough for one family. That's the family of Abraham. And God enlarges His covenant now with Abraham, and He says to Abraham, through you and your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. And we continue on through the path of redemptive history, and we go from a gate big enough for a man and a gate big enough for a family we come to a gate that's big enough now for a nation, and God enlarges that gate once again. And He forms Israel into a nation through the prophet Moses, standing on Mount Sinai, giving the new law, the new, the, what we call the old covenant, was a new covenant for them, the covenant of the law. And He forms Israel into a nation. So the gate's gone from man, family, nation. Then we continue on redemptive history and we come to the next enlargement of the gate to life where it becomes big enough for a kingdom. And David is the greatest king of Israel. And God, again, this is a story of four covenants. Right? Noah, Abraham, Moses, and now David. And God says to David in his covenant, you will have a descendant who will rule on a throne, but not just a temporary kingdom or a temporal kingdom, but a universal and an eternal kingdom. So the gate's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, the gate to life. Man, family, nation, kingdom. And as we travel a little on further from David, we come to the advent of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is born, and through His birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection, the final piece to this gate falls into place. We recognize as Christians, the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam. You got the first Adam who blew it, and then Jesus is the last Adam who did what the first Adam was supposed to do, and that was to obey God unto life. Jesus is a second Noah. Through Him, mankind is preserved from the second worldwide judgment of fire. Jesus is called the seed of Abraham. 
through whom all the families of the earth are blessed. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. Moses stood on Mount Sinai. Jesus stood on the mountain and gave a sermon on the mount with the new law of life and the gospel. He spoke with such authority that people were amazed to hear him. And Jesus is the descendant of David. Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke start off with genealogy so that they can prove Jesus is descended from David, sitting on David's throne, ruling over the everlasting and universal kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus is the gate. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. Jesus is the gate. Now, this gate is a narrow gate. We've already said that. In what sense is it narrow? Is it narrow in the sense that we've already talked about where God made it so hard and He knows we're prisoners of our own appetites and who can ever be good enough or righteous enough or try hard enough or be disciplined enough to force themselves through this narrow gate to life? It's not that. The Bible's very clear. The gate is wide as far as that's concerned. Jesus has blown it wide open. Anybody who wants to can come through the gate. The Bible says it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman. None of that matters. Sinfulness doesn't matter. This is a gate that is entered by the grace of God, by grace, through faith, confidence in God and Jesus at baptism. Listen, the reason that faith is so important It was the lack of faith, trust, and confidence in God on Adam and Eve's part that got them in trouble in the first place. It's our lack of trust and confidence in God that's gotten us in our own mess because of our sin. That's why it's only faith. Faith is so critical to God that we trust Him and believe in Him and have confidence in Him. So no, it's not narrow. This gate is not narrow in that sense. But it's narrow in this sense, in the sense of exclusivity. It's exclusive. There is no other gate. That's the sin. There is no other gate. Jesus is the only gate. There's only one gate to life, and he's it. I, you know, I, I have nothing uh, against Muhammad, against Confucius, against Buddha, against Zoroaster, or Gandhi, or uh, any philosopher, or a scientist, or a politician. <laughs> no, nothing against anybody. None of us do. But the thing about All of them, they are all human beings. They are all human beings. They cannot offer what Jesus offers. No human being can do what Jesus did because no human being is who Jesus is. The last Adam, the second Noah, the seed of Abraham, the prophet like unto Moses, the son of David, the son of God. Only Jesus could do what Jesus did as far as salvation. You know, you and I, when we die, it will be because of our sin. We, we pay the price for our sin. So our death cannot substitute for anybody else. We have to die for our own sin. But Jesus lived a sinless life. So when he died, he was not dying for his sin. Therefore, he could offer his death on our behalf, on someone else's behalf. He's the only one who can do that. Now, we still have to die as far as the separation of the body from the spirit. We're talking about the eternal death. 
Jesus, because he is an infinite divine being, his finite suffering was equivalent to our suffering for eternity in hell. It's as if we went to hell and suffered for eternity. Jesus did that on our behalf. It's called penalty paid righteousness. And he's the only one that can offer that because he's the only sinless son of God. The gate is narrow in that there are no other gates. So, picture, picture a gate. I like to picture a corral, maybe a horse corral or where there's cattle. And they've got that kind of gate that swings open and then it swings shut. And right now, the gate is open. The gate to life is wide open and anyone who come, wants to can come and enter in. But in one sense, the gate is kind of closing. There's two things that can close the gate to life. One is our own death. When we die, for us, the gate is closed. And the other thing that can close the gate is the return of Jesus. When Jesus returns, His second coming, the gate closes for everyone. And this much we know, that time is closer than it's ever been before. We're closer to the day of our death than we've ever been. And we're closer to the second coming of Jesus than we have ever been. So in that sense, the gate is swinging closed. It's open, but it's swinging closed. And in that regard, the most important question for us, as far as this is concerned, the most important question for us, for people watching, watching for everybody, the most important question is when the gate closes, the gate to life, will it close? Is it closing in front of us? Or is it closing behind us? If the gate closes in front of us, that's bad news. That's the worst news. That means we're on the highway to hell and there's no way to get off. If the gate closes behind us, either when we die or when Jesus returns, that means we're inside. And that's good news. In fact, that's great news. That means that we're on the highway to heaven and there's nothing that can take us off. And probably most of us this morning know, and we have a great certainty and assurance, one way or the other. For most of us, we're inside. And we praise God and thank God for that this morning. But if there were anyone who wasn't, or anyone maybe who's watching, you can know and should know, and can take steps to enter that gate. Right now, right here, and today. Saved by grace through faith, at baptism. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we reflect today on how we have all been on that, what the Bible calls the highway to hell. And we deserved it, Lord, because of our own sin. And how gracious you are and how hard you had to work to open up another path. What, what a cost to you. Because you love us so much, you wanted to get us back to paradise, eternal life and fellowship with you. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. And we rest in the assurance of that today. In Jesus' name, amen.